Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, everybody, to celebrate our 300th episode, we're going to go live to the Knitting Factory in Brooklyn on Friday, March 16th. We've got special guests, Blake Schwarzenbach from Jawbreaker, Brian Baker, Minor Threat and Bad Religion, and Laura Stevenson. It's going to be a blast. If you want to go, there's links to buy tickets on our website, goingofftrack.com. Hello, welcome to Going Off Track. Going Off Track. I'm the podcast where we vary from what you would normally expect. And then go back to it. And then stay there for a minute. <laughs> and then sometimes we go a little bit off track again. Exactly. Where are we now? Are we on track? You know, it's funny. I, we originally wanted to call this podcast Off Track. Yeah. And it was taken. Off Track. And... I think going off track is a better name, but at the time I didn't really like it that much. Too long, I thought. Seemed, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. But now it's... It fits. It fits. It fits. You know, if the shoe fits, right? Yeah, that's what they say. (laughs) Or in the case of today's guest, if the Doc Martin fits. If the Doc Martin fits, yeah. Today we've... Which it did fit quite well. We have a very, (laughs) very stylish guest on the podcast today. Indeed. Someone uh, I have been trying to get to get on the show for a very, very long time. Uh, An old friend, uh, Arthur Smilios. Yes. Uh, Me and Brad were just talking about Arthur's last name uh, because I've known him a long time, but I've never said his last name out loud. Right. And I know it, but yeah. It's funny. It's funny how you have people like that where you're like... How often do you say people's first names, like in conversation? Not that much. You mean last names? Last names. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Loopy. I need a latte or something. Yeah, probably. I think maybe I maybe had too much. Maybe a Girl Scout cookie. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so if you want Girl Scout cookies, hit up Brad. Yeah. I should, uh, yeah, I do. You should be using Go this podcast. Going, why didn't I do it? Yeah, goingofftrack.com slash cookies. You can buy Girl Scout cookies from my dad. Is that a real, that's a real link? I like put it up, yeah. You did? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, if you want to support Brad's kids, goingofftrack.com slash cookies. It supports the Girl Scouts. Supports the Girl Scouts. All of them. Yeah. <laughs> and Brad's kids. Uh, today on the podcast, yes, you may know Arthur from uh, his newest band, World Be Free. You might know him from Token Entry. You might know him from Civ. Or you may know him as... From the precursor to Civ, Gorilla Biscuits. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One of the most legendary hardcore bands ever. Oh, yeah. And uh, in this podcast, we talked a lot about the making of Start Today. One of probably my favorite hardcore record and probably most people's favorite hardcore record. It's pretty good. 
Um, yes. So we talked a lot about recording. We talked a lot about, uh, talked about so much stuff on this podcast. Arthur is such a, Arthur gr- talks quickly too. He talks so quickly and he's, a lot in. <laughs> he's a very good storyteller. And, uh, the whole, t- the whole time this podcast happened, I was like, I can't believe we even had Arthur on sooner. Yeah. Like we've talked about it. We've gone back and forth for years and, uh, I'm so glad it worked out. Cause yeah, aside from being like a, someone who played on all these legendary hardcore records. He also is just a super fun and interesting guy. And, uh, it's I too just, bad that we couldn't talk more about, you know, like just specific instruments and stuff. Cause <laughs> I'm always curious, like what kind of, what guitar people play. Yeah, he doesn't seem to really care about P basses <laughs> or Fender. Or yeah. a particular model. He There's played. some gear talk and, uh, <laughs> and we went really long on this one. So if, if all the gear talk doesn't make the cut to this podcast, you're hearing, uh, it will definitely make it into one of our Patreon outtake uh, sections because yeah. it's too good not to put out there. So if you want to hear some serious gear talk, go to patreon.com slash going off track and join the team. Join, join the, the team. team, man. It's true. But uh, yeah. We recorded this today, of course, at Pulse Music. Pulse Music. Yes, recorded this at the Pulse Music. Props to them. Thank you, as always. Yes. Thank you, Stephen Grywalski. Thank you to the whole team, everyone over at Pulse Music. Um, thanks to Arthur for taking the time out to do this podcast. And yeah, let's uh, get into this podcast with Arthur from Gorilla Biscuits and Sip. It's going on um, so Arthur, I want to start at the beginning. Okay, let's start. You're <laughs> from Long Island. No. No. The Wikipedia page, I don't know who did that. It's completely wrong. None of us is from Long Island. Okay, hold on. Let's start over so I don't sound like an idiot because we're <laughs> no, actually friends. Not, no, it's fine. Start over. I'll just edit I mean, it. I, Long Island's, you know, <laughs> technically, technically, I am, I was born on the, the island of Long Island, but I was born in Queens. You were born in Queens. Yeah. Which, which is, is connected to Long yeah, Island. Yeah, geographically, it's part of Long Island, but... Uh, but it's a borough of New York City. It's, yeah. Geographically, it's Long Island, but... Um, in terms of its uh, its soul, it's it's New York City. Because I always pictured you as being from Queens, so I thought that was yeah, surprising. I'm Queens. I'm Queens. Okay. For better or worse. We just did a podcast with another Queens resident. Who? Craig Satari. I was going to joke. I'm like, yeah, all Queens people. We know each other. <laughs> but I do know Craig Satari. I saw that you Are you, you from that. Bayside, Queens? No, I'm, I was born in Jackson Heights. Okay. And I grew up between Jackson Heights with my mom. And then my dad is in Astoria. So I grew up between those two neighborhoods. But I was yeah jackson heights is where i'm from that's where civ is from too okay walter is from rockaway queens right um luke abby is a brooklyn brooklyn boy native okay and then alex is iowa so nobody's from the island (laughs) (laughs) so how did you sort of sort of get started going to like hardcore shows in new york um so i guess i was like 15 and uh I was living with my mom and then just really, really long, arduous story short. Uh, my dad was a like alcoholic, drug addict, and he got sober and he waited till he was sober for like a year or two and he got back in touch with us. He lived in Astoria. So we ended up, my sister and I ended up moving in with my dad. And at that point, I would already started to like kind of want to get into different kinds of music um, on my own, I guess I call it like uh entry-level punk i mean i had an older cousin who was into it and so i got exposed to the dolls the pistols the clash patty smith all that through him um and i did actually i actually i loved the clash already because like i i had uh i'd seen them open for the who in 82 
And I had tried to see them the year before when they did the residency at Bond. And my mom, she was really, she was great. She was a real, like, lefty, you know, progressive, loved New York uh, person who, who encouraged who encouraged us to take advantage of living here. But she drew the line because she bought the propaganda of it being so dangerous. And I suppose in retrospect, you know, <clears throat> Times Square was dangerous then. I freaking loved it. But so I was, she's like, no, no, you can't do that. I was too young. So I had to see them the next year. But anyway, so then I moved to Astoria and Ernie and Johnny from Token Entry, I had known them from when I was kids and I used to go and spend the summers at my dad's. And uh, by the time I moved there, they were like full on into it. They had done Gilligan's Revenge. They were like really a part of the whole hardcore scene. So it was just kind of a, a natural progression that I was into, you know, punk music and new wave. And, and then I, you know, reconnected with them they took me to cbgb and uh yeah i just angst ridden 15 16 year old you go down there you see agnostic front you see this club completely packed fire hazard straight up fire hazard (laughs) i mean and you know so i was i was converted and, was, was that terrifying? Yeah, completely. And had I not had those guys like uh, Ernie, Johnny, Anthony Kaminali, because by then they were doing token entry, uh, take me down. I, I mean, I never would have gone. I never. I would never would have had the, the guts to walk into that club because the thing about it was, it was a lot of kids like Walter Siv and me who were uh, you know just working class kids that are about as you know frightening as a kitten. But there were some real dangerous dudes down there. Some some guys that. You know, in the internet age, probably couldn't get away with laying low like you do, like they, you know, they used to do. And, uh, but, you know, the other thing, the other thing that I always talk and I bring it up with him was Jimmy Gestapo was from Astoria. So I met him in Astoria and he's just a really great guy. And even back then, I mean, I'm like this nobody because there was, there was a hierarchy and a pecking order in the scene. And, uh, you know, I was again, nobody, but he, I met him in Astoria and then the next weekend at CB's at the matinee, Outside the club, he came up to me and was like, hey, Arthur, how you doing? He hugged me. And it was suddenly, it was in these moments where you kind of peripherally saw everybody take note. And I was okay. Like, no, you know, I was with Jimmy. Jimmy knew me. <laughs> that was okay because Jimmy was way up in the hierarchy, you know. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, that, I, I, but it was, it was really a scary place. I mean, even, even when I knew people, I'd go there and I'd just be like, look at this, look at this guy, man. This is like a terrifying dude. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, but I, you know, it was, it was completely addicting. It was like, a, you know, for somebody like me that, you know, in Queens, Queens at the time was really different. It was kind of, it's funny now how Queens is getting gentrified and becoming a cool place because it was like the butt end of the joke. You know, everybody, you know, I went to high school, like from my high school where Siv and I went to high school, you could look out the window and see Manhattan. That's how close it was. Okay. I went to high school with kids that had never been to Manhattan. And they said, why do you, why do you go to the city? Why do you go to the city? Like, what do you mean? What do I go to the city? <laughs> it's a train ride away. You haven't been? No, nah, I never been. <clears throat> so, like, the goal for kids that were into different things was to get to Manhattan, um, and you know, we all did that at some point or other. But uh, yeah, Queens at the time was kind of you know, oh, you're from Queens in this like disparaging way. Brooklyn too. Uh, you know, Brooklyn is like the height of cool now. And I, I was going to say, like, I, my wife's family's from the Bronx. Oh, Bronx. Her is mom awesome. and all of you know her family, and her uncle who moved out of the Bronx 
I don't know, 1970 to go yeah. to college and never lived there again. <laughs> when we, you know, when we live in Brooklyn, his daughter moved to Brooklyn. He's like, why would anyone want to move to Brooklyn? Yeah. <laughs> like the old guard still feels that way. Fucking get it. Yeah. Yeah. You my know? dad's generation is still like, what? Yeah. <laughs> why? But it's true. Like yeah. it was, you know, Brooklyn was not cool. Brooklyn, you know, the Bronx, oh, the Bronx always had respect for the Bronx. No offense to anybody, but Staten Island is just an afterthought that, you know, we yeah, always... Staten we always, Island's Jersey. Yeah, that's it. We say Jersey could have it. I mean, just look at the way Staten Island votes and Jersey can fucking yeah. have it. But, um, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, the only... Manhattan was the cool borough. I mean, no, the Bronx, like I said, I've always had, like, this uh, awe of the Bronx. Well, see, I remember I grew up in the, in, in the 70s and Bronx was burning and yeah. going to Yankee games with my dad and seeing seeing the South Bronx and not really understanding what was going on, of course, not being a political person, not understanding, like, these are, you know, this is the disaster of capitalism and this is, the, you know, systemic racism and, and such. I didn't get that. All I knew was, like, this is burnt out and yeah. this is insane. I feel like that even lasted into the early 90s. Oh, like, hell the yeah. Yankees games in the early 90s was Banded freaky vehicles. as fuck. Totally, yeah, yeah. the abandoned vehicle. No, no, for sure. It all changed with Giuliani and that yeah. and that broken windows bullshit. But no, you're right because even into the '90s, like I always talk, you know, everybody glorifies the '80s. And I was telling a friend of mine recently, a young guy. He's 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 uh, from Colombia and he lives in New York now. And we were just talking, and he was asking me all about old New York because he has this romantic view of it. And you know, saying the '80s, yeah, it was great and whatnot. But I was a teenager in the '80s. Like my time for living was the '90s. Like that's when I was an adult and I came of age and I was out of school and I could do things. And the '90s was, you know, living living in the Lower East Side in the '90s. I was, I lived, I lived on Rivington Street in this apartment that was like with two other people. It was this massive apartment with an outdoor patio in the back, right on the Rivington second floor, and what? between Ludlow and Essex. And I was paying two thirty eight oh, a month. Wow. <laughs> because it wasn't a legal building. Right. You know, that's in the 90s. That's w deep into the mid-90s at this point, you know. Um, and so, like, that's really things started changing in the 90s, but it didn't, you know, didn't really manifest and hit, I guess, until the late 90s, early 2000s. But, you know, I, I hear... Like even the Bronx now is getting gentrified, like the Grand Concourse area. Oh yeah, I have Bronx is who, the next. Spot, I have friends man. who move there. <clears throat> it's too wow, far, man. man. I have friends. So For me, it's close. It's actually well, funny. I live about a ten to fifteen minute walk from Yankee Stadium. Oh really? Yeah, I live on one forty second between Broadway and Riverside. I just walk up to one fifty five, walk over McCombs, and if you work right uptown there, it's not that far. Wow, it's yeah. a different city. It is. It's a very different city. I mean, that's the funny thing. You know, my, my dad tells me stories that, you know, you don't know New York. But then he's like, well, my dad told me I don't know New York. And I guess I'll tell my kids if I have them, you don't, you certainly don't know New York. Yeah. I mean, I remember when um, back in 1990, I had a second job. I was doing the sound at an off-Broadway show at the Victory Theater before it was renovated. And when I was doing this show was around the time that word came out that Disney was going to take over Times Square. And because really into 1990, 1991, Times Square was still Times Square. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just remember like the pushback with the art, the art, artistic community being like, no, 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 this is not how to do it. The way to do it is the, like what the group that I was work with whom I was working was doing it. You do real theater, organic local theater. But uh, I remember I would leave that job at night at like 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night after the show. And uh, sometimes I wouldn't I wouldn't take the train from Times Square. I'd walk down to Herald. 
or I'd walk mm-hmm. up to like 49th Street because it was so goddamn dangerous. Right. I got just mugged. being in the subway yeah. station. Yeah. I got is... mugged at this in the, the Times Square subway station in broad daylight at 6 p.m. <laughs> 6 p.m. <laughs> on a September afternoon I, evening. Shit. I had just picked up a 1962 reissue Fender Jazz Bass. I had put it oh on my way I'd worked my ass off and I just picked it up and it was a nice day out and I had my, my wallet in my back pocket and I have a jacket on to cover it or anything. And I'm walking down the steps, just happy as I could be this candy apple red 62 mm-hmm. issue J bass stack knob. And the next thing I know, it was, it was my 10 after six. Next thing I know I'm at St. Luke's Roosevelt. It's uh, about Fuck. quarter after midnight oh, and my arm is around my sister and my friends and my friends and my sister, and my, my old man were there and I was walking out and I'm like, it just, all of a sudden, it was like, where, what the hell is going on? And so my sister had this relationship. She's like, okay, you, you were mugged. You had, you had amnesia for the last six hours. You're not going to your apartment. We're taking you home. Um, I was just cut up. What had happened was they hit me over the head with, like, I assume it was like a slapjack or something. And they didn't take the base, though. That was my first Whoa, question. Really? Like, oh, really? Oh, base? God. Too cumbersome to run with it. They wanted my wallet. Dude, so it's like, that is a perfect. That's all. I'm like, they got away with twenty dollars. No, they got away with sixty dollars. Take my wallet. Three twenties and my and my ATM card, which I could cancel right away. Yeah. And my my bank card didn't have anything in it because I just paid for the jazz bass anyway. <laughs> so I was like, I just look. I'm like, where's my bass? She's like, your bass is fine. Your bass is fine. I'm like, oh, wouldn't oh that be God. something? Like, I put this freaking thing on layaway and then like, you know. But anyway, but I had a, I had a guitar stolen one time when I was driving to oh. the uh, to the pawn it because I was broke. I've done that too. Oh, <laughs> dude. That. I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> well, you don't Some have to the pawn gems. anymore with Craigslist. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's and true. That you just sell this it. This was before <laughs> Craigslist. Yeah. yeah. Would you lose? What was it? It was a Les Paul. It was like a Les Paul Deluxe with the thin. How about like that one right there? Matter of fact, maybe that's it. I should check this. <laughs> out. What had the, the, the P90 in it? The soap bar? Yeah. No, the thin P. No, the thin humbuckers. Okay. It was a nice guitar. But. It's a fucking Gibson Les Paul. <laughs> it's yeah. a nice guitar. <laughs> they never had a bad year, did they? No. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing I learned because I was as a Fender guy. And then once I started learning more, I learned that, like, you know, Fender had some rough years. Gibson never did. Yeah. yeah. It's true. Although, like, those 70s, 80s Gibsons are, like, 400 pounds. Yeah, yeah. I have, I have an 89 Les Paul Custom, and I think it's, like, giving me permanent back problems. Yeah. Walter's so, Les Paul Custom, the quicksand guitar? Yeah. Do you know why he didn't play that for the longest time? No. Just the sheer weight. Yeah. yeah. That's why he was playing as To stand up and play that? Have you seen the size of Walter? He's like me. Yeah. (laughs) I remember one time when I was in Token Entry, I was playing guitar, and I played a Stratocaster, and uh, I broke a string during the set. And, you know, it was quick turnover at C because I couldn't sit there and, like, restring the guitar. And Gavin, Gavin Von Vlock gave me his Les Paul for half the set. I really thought that my spine had compressed. (laughs) It probably did. Yeah. I'm like, how do you you play this goddamn thing? You know, I'm like, they sound yeah. so good, though. They do yeah. nothing yeah. in the <laughs> world. That's why, I could, never That's play. why. I could never play one because of that. I had used to play like a, a Spirit, which is like a junior. Because yeah, yeah. it was kind of close to the sound, but could actually wear it for an hour. Yeah. Yeah, there's, but there really is nothing. There's a reason nothing sounds no, like no. a Les yeah. Paul. It really... I still... I mean, I'm just very much, you know, the old guard with that, too. I'm like, you want a heavy sound, get yourself a Les Paul and a 50-watt Marshall or a 100-watt Marshall. Totally. Get it freaking... Get a JCM 800 or a JMP and overdrive the shit out of it with those EL34s, and you're not going to get a better sound. Yeah, than that. yeah. it's true. How did yeah. so? How did you and Siv kind of like put Gorilla Biscuits together? Okay, that was um, it was interesting because I became friends with Walter when we were living. Walter was living in Astoria by this point. How did and- you guys meet? <laughs> 
my first job was at this place called Wallbounds, a supermarket right down the block from my house. So I got the job, and they were like, okay, Wally's going to train you. Go find him. <laughs> and I'm like, it's my first fucking day. It's a supermarket. There are a million people here. And they're like, so they're like, you're going to know. He looks just like you. <laughs> I'm like weaving the aisles up and down. And I see this freakish skinny kid with the most like adorable Paul McCartney face. And I saw him from the back. And I just remember he was wearing cuff jeans, which like if you wore cuff jeans back then, you were either into rockabilly or, or hardcore. That was like a right. thing. Right. And a pegging, crew cut. Pegging your jeans. Exactly. Yeah. And he's like all duck footed and walking. And I'm like, and I see the crew cut. I'm like, Wally turns around, looks at me just a mouthful of steel he had like <laughs> braces on both and like silver braces hey man you must be the new guy yeah what's your name arthur yeah man i'm walter okay cool um what kind of music are you into he asked me i told him and he actually asked me because you ever go to cbgb i'm like i go there every weekend can i go with you sure so we became friends right away and uh interestingly enough i found out that we were we, we one of the things on which we bonded was our goofy names and his, he's like, yeah, man, my middle name is Arthur. And I thought he's like kidding with me. His name is Walter Arthur. I'm like, wow, you're you're like twice cursed. Because <laughs> I was, and, but by the same, by the but by the same token, I, I never wanted my middle name to be Walter Moore. But um, so <laughs> that yeah, would have been amazing. <laughs> I know, I know. So we became really, really good friends, and you know, we started hanging out, and um, you know, he, I was in Token Entry at the time, and then Walter wanted to put this band together. And I was playing guitar for Token Entry, but I've always considered myself a bass player. It's the instrument I love. So he's like, I'm going to do this thing, play bass for me, for sure. And then Ernie from Token Entry was playing drums. So we needed a singer. Now, in the, in the, in the interim, um, I don't, how did we do it? Because Siv was in Jackson Heights. And we met Siv at this point. Now, I was in, I was, this is the funny thing. I was in the same high school as Siv. <laughs> In the same grade as Siv, but we didn't know each other. There were about a thousand kids in our high school, and there were four kids that were into punk rock or hardcore. It was uh, Siv, uh, our friend Danny Zick, our friend Gus, this other kid, I think Andrew was his name, and Siv. But it's funny because Siv and I didn't have any classes together, and he's, I, Siv is one of the funniest people you'll ever meet. And I was like, dude, we never had any class together. He's like, yeah, because I took all the fucking idiot classes and you took all like the, the, the smart guy classes. <laughs> but um, it took meeting Walter. Walter met him somehow. And then we all like, you know, totally loved him right away. And we used to go, we used to take our skateboards from Astoria and skate over to Jackson Heights to the laundromat where Seb worked across the street from his house. And I remember we went to the laundromat and the laundromat had a basement and... It's just kind of like it was a harbinger of our lives because Walter and I were doing everything we could at this point to avoid work. And Siv was like working really hard. And that's like how it's always been. And we'd go to the laundromat after school <laughs> and Siv would give us coins from the laundry machines to get like soda and, and snacks from the vending machine. But anyway, they had this basement there and we went downstairs and Siv and, and his friend Danny were still all friends. I saw Danny recently. They had done on the wall of the... Uh, of the basement, they had written the lyrics to Last Warning in the exact font that it's written in Victim in Pain. And Walter went, and I went down there, and it was just like, you know, mushroom clots from our ears, our minds were blown at how cool this was. <laughs> so we loved Seth. He started hanging out. And then this is the story of how he... So, like, this is the the the, the germ. This is like the incipient Gorilla Biscuits. But uh, Walter would write all these joke songs because he's one of the funniest people, like, those two guys have done nothing but make me laugh for 30 plus years. And um, 
anyway, so we were all hanging out. This, there was this place called the Pyramids in Astoria that we used to skate. There were these like truncated pyramids outside of the Con Edison plant, and they were perfect for skating. So like all the punk rock kids would hang out there, mm. the hardcore kids. Those are in a lot of skate videos from that time. Yeah. I remember that. They're yeah. in disrepair now. Yeah. I, I, I still go back to the neighborhood because I lived there until recently. My sister lives there. My dad lives there. But um, we were all hanging out, and uh, Only Gonna Die by Bad Religion was on because, you know, it's the 80s. We had boom boxes. And <laughs> Sif starts singing along. And Sif has, like, really can truly sing. He's one of those people I, I'm so envious of him because I can't. So I'm a terrible singer. Like, I can carry a tune for backup, but I wish I could sing. And uh, Ernie from Token Entry was like, you should sing for Walter's band. You should sing for the new band. So, of course, you know, like, the the, the extremely, you know difficult vetting process sure cool so that, that's how that happened and then you know walter started writing all these songs and a lot of them were really goofy and then suddenly we kind of realized that we're onto something that walter i remember the song that made me realize that walter really had talent and really could write a song was uh when he wrote high hopes at that moment i thought wow now we're into something new over here like this guy really has an ear for writing a catchy song so yeah, and then the, the the original lineup was, uh, and we have the demo too that we did in in, in that summer of '86. It was uh, Walter, Siv, uh, Ernie playing drums, and myself. Yeah. What was it like? What was the process like of making Start Today? Because I feel like kind of like today, that's probably like, if not the most legendary hardcore record ever, like one of them. Wow, we didn't think so at the time. Really, um, Walter started writing the album. And uh, we, we got signed to Revelation Records, and Rev had some success at that point, so they had a little bit of money. And uh, we had a budget, so... <laughs> Rather than listening to Judge, to like Youth of Today and Judge, who basically told us not to do it, we went to Chung King. <laughs> <laughs> we started recording at Chung King. And Chung King, what they did, they did great. They had no idea how to work with punk rock and hardcore. And, you know, we got the worst hours. I remember... Uh, we would record it like two, three, four, or five in the morning, and I remember it was winter time, and uh, <laughs> I lived in Queens, and Luke lived in Brooklyn, but the studios in Manhattan, and we had to be there at like two o'clock in the morning, and it's freezing outside. So I remember Luke and I going and getting uh, taking a nap at my ex girlfriend at her dorm. She lived at Weinstein uh, on University Place because she was a freshman at NYU, and we got up and we went and recorded there, and they just treated us like they just. Like we were trash it was really it was really kind of funny and annoying and uh i remember we had, we had an engineer who had like a really serious coke problem and one night he didn't have any coke and he was just so freaking irritable and walter and i were like goofballs at the time and we were like making up these songs these stupid annoying it's songs also like you're the client <laughs> i know we're yeah. giving you money so walter and i at the time we recorded start today um I recorded it on a on a uh, 1973 precision bass that had been stripped down to natural wood, and Walter was recording it on my Stratocaster that I had sold him my Stratocaster that had also been stripped down to natural wood. So they were both like these ash body fenders with black pick guards, and they were right next to each other. <laughs> so of course, Walter having to make a joke of everything in life, and it's like. Wow, I said, I was like, wow, look at that. Our instruments complement each other really, really nicely. So Walter made up this song. <laughs> and uh, he was like, so the song is tall and skinny because we're both tall and skinny. So he's like, the song is we're tall, skinny, and we have the same guitars. We're tall, skinny, and we have the same guitars. And then he does the harmony, tall, tall, skinny, and we have the same guitars. And then it ends with, 
at the first verse it ends and he goes well i'm a little bit short but i have the same guitar and he repeats <laughs> and at the end of the second verse he drops out and i go he's a little bit short but he's as skinny as me it's a good hook it's already in my head Dude, it'll never leave your head and you're gonna lose your mind and hate me for doing this to you but the thing is we're one night the night that he didn't have his coke and he's like he was actually crawling on the floor like looking <laughs> yeah so we were like bored we're paying for this and it's freaking three o'clock in the morning and it's freezing outside so um we start singing the song. It's like, guys, no, no tall and skinny tonight. No goddamn fucking tall and skinny tonight. <laughs> so I look at Walter. He looks at me. Because we're tall and skinny. So anyway, we, we, we finally realized soon enough like, that that wasn't happening. So we, we, we uh, put an end to that and decided we were going to record it at, uh, at Fury Studio. And um, that was the best thing we did because Don Fury knew us. We had done the demo there. But I remember recording it because we were we did it on uh, on videotape. That was the technology at the time for the for the for the least amount of noise. You recorded on really? when is ADAT? It's before ADAT. It was done on 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 either was it on beta or VHS? I just remember he Don had a bank of four. That's the ADATs. Those were the ADATs. That's what they were. Yeah, 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 yeah. This was like when, like yeah. 80, in the early nineties. It 89. looks like a in between a. When was it? Eighty nine. Oh no, it couldn't have been ADAT. 80, late 88, early 89. But Don had yeah. a bank of ADATs later. I think this is before. He yeah, had, no, no. I think it was actual video, uh, like videotape that uh. he used. Yeah. And uh, so Walter's writing the album and I'm just thinking, wow, this guy is really just progressed. Like he's hit a new level over here. And, uh, you know, when he, when he came out with the song Star Today, I was like, and then competition, like, it was like, dude, you're just. And then we were done with the album, I remember. And he's like, I have one more song. I have one more song. We got to learn it and do it. And the song that almost didn't make the album was uh, New Direction. No way. Yeah, it was the last song. <laughs> really? It was the last song. Yeah, last song. Uh-huh. And then uh, the interesting thing about that album is that uh, initially the songs, had they were a lot more melodic. And then, you know, we decided uh, to rough it up a little bit. And I was against it. I'm like, no, no, no. He's like, we're such a soft band. I'm like, yeah, that's what we are. I'm like, we have a singer that can sing. How many singers? I'm like, Richie can sing. Richie, Richie Birkenhead can sing and Siv can sing. We're like the bands in New York that have singers that can sing. What was melodic? Like there was a more melodic. Yeah. Like, like, okay, so you know the song parts? Cats and Dogs? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like, man, the original thing, it was a man's best friend is beautiful and affectionate. So you can see I can't sing. An ideal <laughs> pet, it had an actual like up like and down uh, lilting melody. And uh, I mean, there's some others I can't think of. Like, Because it's funny, I thought even like out of bands from that era, your band was so melodic. Like, yeah. yeah. The oh, hooks and the melodies. I that mean, was what. Yeah, that's that was the thing. That's what yeah. Oh, or like, or um, or competition. So you, um, okay. So the bass line. I picked up the melody on the bass line to the chorus of that, where it goes ba da da, because originally it was memories of better days, and like they roughed that up a little bit, you know. And um, I got outvoted on that, but that's fine because I didn't write the songs. You know, I sat there and I was obstinate about. It. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> but in the end, it's Walter and Siv. Like they're the you know, the, the the guys that are making it happen. And I guess it turned out okay. But it's funny that after all these years, after not hearing the, the original versions for so long, they're still stuck in my head, those melodies. But, uh, so yeah, I remember um, we went into Don Fury's studio and we did it and we did it in like no time at all. It didn't take long at all. And uh, the atmosphere was just so much better. Yeah. 
I do remember very distinctly um, when they still called the Super Bowl hardcore in uh, January of 89. And that ended up being the picture of me on, on Star Today is taken from that show. Uh, we ran directly over to the Ritz from uh, Webster Hall, the Ritz then. Uh, nothing now. We ran directly over from the studio and Chris Williamson's like screaming at us because we were late. Get the fuck on stage. Oh, like, yo, dude, just calm down. But I remember as we walked in, people knew we were at the studio in the scene. And that was like, the Super Bowl was like, everybody showed up. So Super it was, Bowl you know, like 1,500 kids. <laughs> so kids that didn't show up at every CB's matinee were like, oh, yo, you guys, were, I heard you in the studio, I heard you in the studio. And it just felt kind of cool to know that we had like already generated this buzz that people cared about it. But the thing is, I didn't think people understood, like, you know, I think the 7-inch had a couple of songs that gave an indication and then the compilations we did, but I didn't think that, you know, I didn't expect Walter to write the things that he wrote, and he still does this to me to this day, and then things that everything he writes. And I kind of, like, was harassing him recently because um, a few years ago we were doing the Walter Schreifels project, and he wrote these some of these really catchy, amazing rock and roll songs and pop songs. And I just looked at him, I don't know, in the last few months, like, I, every so often I'll, I'll bother him about this and just be like, dude, you just need to put those songs down. Let's go in and put these three songs down and just re-release them. Yeah, man. <laughs> I'm like, you don't have enough on your plate, do you? <laughs> that's like, that's my joke with him now. I'm like, hey, so Walter, you need a new project, don't you? <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing, Arthur. Why do I keep doing this? But uh, let's, you know, let's talk a little bit about Don Fury because yes. So we've had a lot of bands in here who got their start in that fucking basement, and we've yeah. never talked about Don Fury. Oh, and I've worked with Don Fury, and he is a phenomenon. Yeah. And back then... And a character. Yeah, and a full-on character. <laughs> Total character. So just describe the studio at the time. <laughs> yes. Okay, so it's on... Uh, Which is on a very, now, very prominent Spring plot. Street. Yeah. yeah. It was Spring Street in Little Italy. And uh, he lived in... <laughs> Did you ever go into his apartment? Yeah, yeah. He used to have the parties. Yeah. In his, he lived in, on the first floor, the which was like a storefront. Yeah. And he had the basement, which yeah. the studio was in. Yeah. And like, I've been there for parties when his neighbors would throw fucking shit off the roof, like water and shit, because people are spilling out onto the street, yeah. you know, like, but he, and he had kids too. That was the thing. He, was, he did have he kids. He was divorced and he had these two yeah. kids that were there half the time. Yeah. yeah. I, but the studio was like, you know, sonically and everything, it was horrific. It was just yeah. a fucking basement. It was a basement. Yeah. With a tiny little control room. And he had his outboard. He literally had two of those DBX compressors with the slider on him. And that was all he had for compressors. But dude, he made some, he worked with every, he did all the, he did everybody's records like Civ, Gorilla Biscuits, Quicksand. Quicksand. He did all the AF, first, yeah. all the, the early really shit. What put him on the map. Right. Yeah. But you see, you go into so the studio, you know this. So you're walking down, you're walking down Spring Street. And um, so anybody walks down any street in New York, you, you step on them. On the metal, metal doors, yeah, that are against the sidewalk. Well, to get to get into Fury Studio, those metal doors opened up, and there was a, a concrete staircase that went down. And I can't count how many times I hit my forehead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you go downstairs, and there it is. You walk right into the control room. Right. So the control room was the width of whatever the plot is. You know how how wide is that? Twelve, was, twelve feet. Yeah, at the most. Yeah, and maybe six feet deep. Yeah, and then you know. A good three and a half of those feet are taken up by whatever the board is. So there's like this little couch and like another chair. And then to the right of the board, so that, yeah, and then there's the, the window. And to the right of the board was the door to go into the actual studio. Studio had a carpet that 
was probably about as sanitary <laughs> as the floor of CB's because God knows what had been spilled it had on it. It had never been clean. Never been clean. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you just set up your equipment in this one big room, but in the back right corner, he had the fishbowl. That's yeah, what the drums, the drum booths were. <laughs> no, I'm laughing because I've got the best story about things that happened in there. And uh, you would play live. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you put the headphones on, which to us, mind you, this is my first experience in a studio. I'm thinking this is the most pro thing in the world. And uh, it was comfortable, though. And, you know, you looked at Don and, and you know, he was in there and you laid down the tracks and then you started with the overdubs. And Walter and Don had this great, great rapport. They kind of knew. I remember, I remember when we were recording uh, set, the Civ album, Set Your Goals, right on the heels of that, Walter was actually simultaneously... He was working on manic compression <laughs> and it was a beautiful spring day. And I stopped by the studio cause we were going to, we were going to do the tracks for don't got to prove it at a 51 reissue custom shop, butterscotch blonde fender precision bass, <laughs> which was a casualty of a pawn shop. That's the one I don't want to talk about, but I was living on grand street at the time and I walked over and I was like, Hey, Wally, you're already here. He's like, man, I'm always here. He's like, I'm always here. Don and I are becoming like slee stacks because we never see the sunlight. Our <laughs> eyes are just getting really big and hypersensitive. And um, anyway, so uh, just... Okay, they'll go to the fishbowl story. So <laughs> and both, of them, both of them involve Sam Siegler. So we're, <laughs> we're recording. We're recording one day. So I'm looking over at Walter. Like, you know, I'm listening to Sam, but I'm looking at Walter... <laughs> And all of a sudden, so the way we're set up is that as I'm facing Walter's, the 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 fishbowl is to my right. So wait, we should tell you what the fishbowl is. Yeah, it's the, the drum. Oh right, I didn't even it's explain what corner, it is. In the corner, he had of put a basement. Like, plexiglass, <laughs> a plexiglass curved Perfect. wall, a, ha- a half circle. Yeah, yeah, that was like to shield the drums <laughs> from bleeding into the rest of the room, which just made them sound terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> so, so I'm watching Walter, and then all of a sudden, I notice like a f- peripherally, I notice a flash. Of, <laughs> I notice a flash of light. I turn around just for a second. The drums stop, and I see Sammy running for cover like this, holding the for cover. He had hit the light bulb over him. Exploded, exploded all over him in the fishbowl. The ceiling's only seven feet, man. I was losing my shit laughing. <laughs> Another time, it had gotten so hot in the fishbowl that Sammy just threw up all over the drums. <laughs> I remember going in there between takes just to see how it was. And I, I don't know how they survived. It was so, so, it was, there was no filtration system. There was no nah, vent. So, the filtration was, system was between takes and Donnie would open the door, the door and open the door to the street. And like he would sit and so that, you know, the Italians would all hear his mixes all day yeah. long. <laughs> but I just remember, so it's the stale air in there. And then like the, the drummer is doing the most physic, you know, physically exerting thing. So it just stinks in there too. <laughs> I don't know if Sam or Luke or anybody didn't just pass out or Alan Cage didn't pass out in there. That is so crazy. Yeah. It's just like, that but place was, is that that should have been. I wish I wish I had the chance to go in that there. Place. Do you know I what Siv told me? Legend. Actually, he went by the he went by, 
and uh, the restaurant owners are, are cognizant of what was there oh, really? and respectful of it. And they actually will let you go down in the basement if you go to say, hey, I recorded here. If you get them on the right day or something, they brought Civ down and it's still pretty much preserved. I mean, they oh, use it as cool. a storage. But They'd leave the wall up between I the think control left, room? I don't know if that's there, but the things on the walls, I think, are still there. I think everything's still like pretty oh. much... Yeah, I don't know if the fishbowl's still there, but I got to ask Sid. But he went in about a year or two ago, and he was telling me he's like, "Yeah, they're really cool." Like they, wow. Yeah, I went in and I was like, "They, they." I just went in, and I think he just said to me, "Hey, I used to record downstairs," and they they were really receptive to it. Like I said, they mm. they're they're aware of what the history of that place is, and you know, just another another thing you know gone and it's funny now with recording because you know later on with Civ we ended up recording at like Bearsville Studios on this massive Neve board that supposedly was the board they used for Quadrophenia whether that's true or not I don't know but I want to believe it right because I want to believe that I played bass <laughs> through the same board that John Entwistle right. did it's true it's probably yeah, true, it's probably true. Bearsville. but yeah. yeah that studio was incredible yeah. I mean I remember just like I went into the this, the, uh, the storeroom of that studio and I was just amazed at like the tubes that they had and the amplifiers, I, I mean, the bank of amplifiers I used to record the second Civ album. And then, you know, so afterward, we and now you look at recording the way it is, digital and whatnot. And then, you know, it's really primitive when you think of what, what, what Fury was doing. But for us at the time, it was cutting edge. Like, oh, you're going to do this to kill, cancel out noise? That's brilliant. <laughs> and it was our first uh, experience with, with, uh, with you know, uh, in, drop-ins and, and overdubs and punch-ins rather and overdubs and it can be pretty disorienting if you've never done it before yeah i just thought it's it was like, magical and cool because yeah. you know most of the baselines i got down live but they're you know i'm a human being and and you know you go slightly off and i would i was like oh my god we can just do this and now the way it's done yeah. is just so yeah. much different yeah, it is. You know, it's like oh we can pick that up but i feel like stretch it out yeah compress it you know like I feel like especially like for singers, even in the digital age, just hearing themselves in headphones for the first time. Like I'll always ask someone, have you have you sang in headphones before? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because it it's so people get super freaked out. Yeah, and, like, it's disconcerting. I totally yeah. lose their ability to, oh, I to, do, to sing. I had a like, question about. Uh, oh, sorry. We still no, talk, no, no. Uh, when Charlie came in the podcast. Yeah. He talked about Charlie. Civ opening for Kiss at MSG yeah. and he took the subway there. Yeah, so did I. <laughs> you did too. I yeah. was gonna. That was my question. <laughs> yeah, that's when I was living on. Uh, was I living on Rivington at the time, or was I living? Where the hell was I living? I moved so much when during those Civ years. I ended up actually giving up my apartment, and I would just because we were always on tour, so I would crash with my sister on Eighty First Street in East End. I don't know where I was staying at the time, but I took yeah. I had my jazz bass in a gig bag, and uh, oh no, no, I used the P bass. I was using the P bass. And I had a new gig bag and showed up at Madison Square Garden. Like, I'm the support act. <laughs> what, do you, what do you remember about that show? <laughs> that they're dicks. <laughs> I didn't want to do the show. Really? I was outvoted three to one because we were on the Warp Tour. I mean, in retrospect, I'm glad we did it because it's something to say. Mm -hmm. But I was like, wait. So we're going to drop off the Warp Tour for two days, pay money to fly home, open for Kiss, get no respect, no money. Because at that point, Gene Simmons was saying... Even Alice in Chains didn't get paid when they opened on that tour. Wow. <laughs> yeah, he's like, the, the payment is the honor of opening for Kiss. Oh, my oh, gosh. God. That's like the most Gene Simmons thing. <laughs> I just want to sit down and be like, dude, you do know that you're just a grown man wearing kabuki makeup that's playing mediocre <laughs> songs. And the only people, reason people come to see you is because of your show. Because to your credit, you put on an incredible show. But your songs pretty much suck. Yeah. <laughs> you're not a bass player. You're, a, you're what I call a, a, 
a base abuser or a base molester. <laughs> um, Night Bob told me the best kiss story. You know Night Bob? No, I don't think the so. Guy, he used to like, oh, Night Bob. He used to do sound at like, uh, like Don Hills. And he's oh, then I definitely know him. <laughs> and he, they call him Night Bob because he used to work. He got to start working at the music building on uh, Ninth Avenue. I was, was there a, the other day. There was a day bob and a night bob. Oh, nice, <laughs> nice. But night bob is like this roadie. He's roadied for. He used to roadie for like the dolls, and then he roadied for Kiss. Yeah, they came out of the same scene. Yeah, and he said that like, besides the fact that he said that Kiss loved the New York Dolls, like they would whenever yeah, they, they were planning the a tour, dolls. they would talk about. Oh, remember when they were, we were there with the dolls? Like how awesome that was. Yeah, because they owed the dolls. They took from the dolls, and the dolls were actually good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. he said. They were doing this tour that was later, you know, like, like not, you know, not a reunion tour, but like a tour in like the eighties or late eighties or, and he said, or maybe early nineties. And he said, you know, they showed up at the, at the stage where the rehearsal was going to be and they're waiting for, for Paul and, and Gene to show up. And he looks up and here come these two guys walking in in like gym shorts, like seventies gym shorts. And, and they sit down and they start talking about the tour. And the whole time they're just like kvetching about, uh, well, if we're going to, okay, Cleveland, we can't stay at that hotel we stayed at last time. <laughs> that was terrible. And, like, they literally couldn't talk anything about the music or the show or the venue. They were just, like, literally, like, just bitching. He's and like, he's, and it like, was like, he goes, Like a couple looked, of old biddies. He said, like, it looked and sounded like I was in the room with two old Jewish ladies. Was it Paul and Jean? Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's kind of cool. Well, I, I mean, I have mad respect for Ace. I mean, look, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, like, talking shit about Kiss, but... It was cool. I mean, I, one more thing. I do have a cool David Johansson story, and I'll tell you guys in a second. That happened just weeks ago. But um, one thing that also struck me is that I wanted to get to our dressing room. And so I went to walk down the hall, and security's like, you can't go down here. And I was like, all access, I'm, I'm, I'm support. They're like, no, that's Kiss's dressing room is down here. It's like, I will walk by it and not look in. They're like, no, you got to walk around. I had to take this massive security room. I was like, okay, what if I tell you that? I don't give a shit about them, and I don't even like them. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. Like, wow. Oh right. <laughs> but the best thing is that Civ won that crowd over, and it was not an easy crowd. That is not really? an open, not an open-minded crowd. The night before, apparently, DJ had had stuff thrown at them, and we're like, so Civ's like, I'm just fuck it, man. I'm I'm deep, reaching deep inside and getting my queens out. We walked out on stage holding my 73p base we're dressed in this like vintage fucking clothing with brothel creepers i got my hair in a freaking in a, in a fucking massive uh quiff and so we walk out and there's a spotlight so i'm like okay so if something gets thrown at me i won't even be able to see it coming yeah, to dodge yeah. it now you know? yeah walk out on stage and these are not my words because i don't speak like this i'm just i have to quote it for this is the reception we got we walk out on stage first thing right at me if somebody's throwing get off the stage faggot <laughs> i look at Siv and I'm like this is gonna be good <laughs> so we get on the stage and Siv just comes right out he's like hey paraphrasing whatever he's like yeah we're Siv we're from new york city i'm from queens new york we we know you're here to see kiss we're excited to see him too we're just gonna warm you up for a little while so people were all of a sudden you know okay well he's coming out in this way with this humility and we won them over and we actually had a really good show and it was a lot of fun and like i said in retrospect i'm really glad we did it and, you know, I'm not going to lie and say that I was, yeah, I was totally for it. I was against it. But uh, it turned no, it turned out to be cool and it's such a cool story to tell. And I could say that I played Madison Square Garden. How yeah, you, hell you, yeah. How do you sound check for that? <laughs> you don't. You don't. You just show up. Yeah. 
There, Holy you're not shit. allowed to sound check. I mean, not opening for Kiss, you're not allowed to sound check. Holy shit! You're like not allowed anything. You just well, I mean, you take the subway. <laughs> yeah, you take the you subway. Take the subway. <laughs> exactly what I did. We all stage. showed up on our own. Wow. We all started. Siv was Siv came up from Thompson Street. That's where he was living on Thompson. Sammy was living on West Eleventh, I guess, at the time. Uh, Charlie was living on Leroy Street, and I was living somewhere. And we all just showed up at our own. I, like I said, I had I had my seventy three P base in a gig bag. I had left my other P base on the warp tour because we were flying right back. And uh yeah. But David Joe, I have a great David Johansson story. So I went to see Morrissey last month. And I'm going up to Will Call to get the tickets. And I'm with my fiance and I look at her, I'm like, David Joe's in the line next to us. She's like, huh? I'm like, David Johansson's in the line next to us. And nobody's saying anything. Nobody's recognizing him. But that's fucking David Johansson, man. She's <laughs> like, yeah. And I was like, the New Yorker in me says leave him alone. I don't like bothering people. Yeah. So I did. Right. So the show ends and we go afterward. We walk over to where the, the after party was. And there he is with like two people. And I went up and I'm like, hey, I just want to tell you, you know, you're, you're incredible. Do you, mind if I t- do you mind if I take a picture with you? Yes. So now I'm a little confused. So I had to clarify. I said, wait, wait so, so you mind that I take the picture? Yeah. Okay. I just want to tell you, I'm a huge fan. I'm from <laughs> Queens and like, yeah. Cool, thanks. Yeah. And my fiance is like this tough little like New York Jewish girl that's just I could see her getting irate and like just calm down. She's like, How fucking dare he? Nobody else recognized him and I was like, You wanna know something? You know how dare he, Caitlin? He's David Johansson. He can do whatever he wants. <laughs> and the funny thing is that in 2012, he had played a show upstairs at Webster Hall. What was that club called? Was it Velvet Rope or something? It was super exclusive. Like, it was one of the most exclusive shows. I think only 50 people got in. And I knew the girl that booked Webster, so she got me in. And I'm watching him play. And so I thought Dave, I thought he was going to... Like, we had a moment at that show. It was as close as you are. And I made complete eye contact with him while he's singing, I don't know, some doll song, you know, Frankenstein or something. And he's like looking right at me and I'm just like swooning hearts and bubbles. So I'm thinking that we have this eternal bond, right? Not so. But I think it's a great story. Like, I got completely cut down by David Johansson. Could be worse. Could be worse. (laughs) Exactly. But I will say this. Had that been Johnny Thunders or Syl Sylvain... We grew up in Jack's same neighborhood, and we went to the same high school. From the first half of my high school, I went to Newtown High School, and that's where that's where Billy Mercia, Sil Sylvain, and De, and uh, and Johnny Thunders all went to school. Yeah, and they really? all grew up in my neighborhood in Jackson Heights. <clears throat> that's wow. wild. So I would have pulled that card. I would be yeah, like yeah. Jackson Heights, Newtown <laughs> High School. And still, I think Sil would have been like totally cool with it. Yeah, I think Sil would have been just like, yeah, for sure, for sure. But, but anyway, the Dolls, great band. Um, uh, I want to mention the first time that we hung out, I don't know if you remember this, was at my apartment in Williamsburg. Yeah. And it was like before the 2008 election and we were watching like the debates or something. Oh, God. And we didn't really like know each other very well because I think I met you through Jamie. Yeah, through Jamie. Yeah, I remember this. And I remembered like... And it's funny that I remember because I was like, I'm a raging alcoholic and I I was an active alcoholic then. I'm just sober now. It was like, it was like Arthur came really early and it was like the debates were on and you were like super animated and everyone's like... Dude, the guy from Gorilla Biscuits is just watching the debates at your apartment. I was like, yeah, he's like really into it. None of us knew anything about politics. And we were like, tell us about it. Yeah. And, and oh, God. <laughs> seems like ages ago. It seems like so. Is, yeah. Addendum. Another reason fuck Gene Simmons is a Republican. <laughs> anyway, go on. Yeah. I mean, have you still, I mean, like, I know you obviously you're big into activism and that kind of stuff. I mean, yeah. is it, have you kind of like, not to like be like a downer for this podcast, but like, have you kept up with all that stuff or have you yeah. kind of like, I haven't been doing activism lately um you burn out on it 
Yeah. So I people that never stop. I have some friends where I just have such respect for them because, especially when you're on the losing side. And I'm, I mean, I'm a Marxist. I'm a socialist. I'm on the losing side. I'm getting my ass kicked left and right. You know, it's really difficult. And I respect people that keep going with it. I mean, I think it's more important now than ever because I don't need to say why we've all been living here for the last year. Um, but yeah, it's, I'm, I'm a hyper political person. Joe Strummer did that. Yeah. I love, and I'll always love the clash for that. You know, my mom did it too, because my mom was always a, a super lefty and, and, uh, you know, throughout my life I've, you know, moved around. I used to think I was a libertarian, which it makes me laugh because I think it's, I realize what a scam that philosophy is anyway. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I can't help but be political. And I think that now more than ever, people need to be engaged and be, and be political because, you know, I, I have no illusions about the United States. I know what it is. I know it's always been a plutocracy. I know it's always been a racist country. Um, but we can be better. You know, that's the thing. People are like, why do you hate America? I'm like, I hate manifest America. I, I mean, I'm, I'm an internationalist. I hate countries. I think they're false constructs. But anyway, America, you know, what is America? It's what we can be. And, uh, you know, like I said, I have no illusions about what it, what it always has been. But we can be so much better. And it's been completely, whatever good there was has been hijacked. And I was just having this discussion today where it's like, I will gain a little bit of respect for the, 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 uh, the, um, the idea of America if it does stand up and it withholds this assault. Because it's, it's an autocratic assault from this guy. And um, so far, like, it's holding. It's holding, you know. I mean, we still, we still do have the First Amendment. We still, you know... It's, it's, you know, he can't, he can't govern by fiat yet. So, you know, that was more, more than anything, but I'm, I'm optimistic though. It's funny because Siv has a daughter, Siv has two daughters and one of them is 15 now. And a few months ago, it was kind of funny because it was my fiance. She's, she's 27. So I'm, I'm not. So I kind of lucked out with this amazing, incredible person, but she was, uh, we were talking about Siv's daughter, and she was. And I was saying, "Did you realize the next presidential election, presidential election she's going to vote?" And so Caitlin kind of take a dig at me. She's like, "How does that feel that she's old enough to vote?" And I stopped. I was like, "It feels fantastic." Do you know why? Because I know how she thinks, and I know what her politics are, and I know her whole generation is coming up, and they have that politics. So millions and millions of little Bellas <laughs> are going to come of age to vote, and all those reactionary, horrible fossils that did this are going to be dead. So I am looking forward to it because I can't <laughs> fucking wait until Bella Civarelli and all her friends. <laughs> Millions and tens and tens of millions of them can vote in the next election. That's going to be fantastic. And, you know, they're not just in New York because of the Internet. They're everywhere. That generation, that post-millennial generation, what are they calling them now? I don't even know. Generation Z or something, I think. Or, yeah, I think. Well, they're amazing. Because I think think the millennials are great. You know, I'm Generation X. And we were better than the one before us. (laughs) And the millennials... The most maligned generation, like no generation has had to eat more shit than the millennials have, you know, and I love them and they're great. And then the generation after them is even better. So, you know, I get really discouraged and I get frustrated and then I just have to sit and think it's going to be okay. You know, like the whole, the great, you know, one of the trillion great quotes about Martin Luther King, you know, the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. And every so often there's a check and we go back a little bit and there's a long way to go. But I really, you know, that's the good thing. That, you know, younger people, there are more decent young people. And I don't say decent in that they have to agree with my, my, my theories on economics and whatnot. I mean decency, as in not misogynistic, not racist, not, you know, 
homophobic, transphobic, whatever, just because that's common decency that you know, to me, that's, that, that's, 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 that's an apolitical thing to treat everybody, you know, equally. And that generation is, you know, gives me hope, gives me a hell of a lot of hope and we need it. You know, that's the long answer to your question. No, that's a fantastic <clears throat> answer. Yeah. Things are, you know, if I live through this, if we all live through this, that next generation is going to be, I mean, that's exciting, man. It's exciting. I, I just, I can't wait to, because I love Siv's daughter. She's a great kid. That's the funny thing too. I was talking the other day about like, wow, you know, here was this kid I used to babysit when she was like four years old and now she's like this young adult and she can talk to me about things and has these opinions. She's an actual human being now with like, that's really smart and really well-educated and just, it's, you know, when you see that, it's, it's... What music does she listen to? She listens to a bunch of stuff. I, I, I don't know. It's kind of hard to, you know, 15, they, they, they go yeah, back. Yeah, and, but she's really into like, um, she's really into uh, My Chemical Romance and, and I guess like what's called now Emo. She's funny because I know emo is like to me emo was DC eighty six eighty seven like right to spring, right to spring yeah. and embrace that was emo and then all of a sudden the term I was like wait no that's not emo <laughs> no emo is what happened yeah. in DC like at that period yeah, yeah. She, how she right. feel about world be free who Bella yeah oh, I'm sure so. she's funny about it because like yeah she's not into hardcore I don't think so she's come to shows yeah she's come to shows and she's she's a great kid she's like I'm so proud you know I'm proud of my dad and you know she's but it's yeah. But yeah, I think she's that's that's what she's really into, like like emo. But I'm sure she's into a million different things because she was it really a couple of years ago into classic rock, and I was so happy about it, and just really into the Beatles. And I'm like, yeah, that's your base. That's where you start. That's good. And then the good thing is, if that's your base, you go forward and you go back. Yeah. Because you know, like through Be- the Beatles and the Who and Led Zeppelin, I went back to the roots music, to the blues, and and got into jazz, and then I got to real deep, deep Mississippi blues, like the you know Sun House and Charlie Patton. And uh, and Booker White and all these guys and uh, so to me that's you know that's a good that's a good foundation. The Beatles. Yeah. Were you guys to get back to like the early days of the band? Sure. It's kind of connected to this. Were you guys like taking lessons and um, stuff? Like because I listen to those records and I'm like it sounds very live and raw, but then it's like some really good playing. Uh, I never took a bass lesson. I took a couple of guitar lessons when I was when I was really young. Walter's completely self-taught. Luke is self-taught. Alex is self-taught. But this is really funny because um, when we started doing the reunions and I was relearning the songs, I just remember sitting with Walter and I just said, you hooked me up. This is such bass-heavy music. <laughs> I just, Walter's such a gracious, incredible person. He's like, yeah, you know what, Arthur? Back then, you were the only one in the band that knew how to play. So I was like, fuck, I got to write these songs around the bass. <laughs> and he meant it, you know, and uh, which is, you know, that's a nice compliment, especially, you know, because the thing is, any kind of a musical compliment coming from him means a lot to me because he's not just one of my dearest friends. I have immense respect for him as a musician. Uh, he's actually become an incredible, he was always a good guitar player. He's a better guitar player now than he's ever been. Yeah. Like, if you saw the, did you see the last quicksand? Yeah. He's holding it down. Yeah. For sure. Or like even in Dead Heavens, he does like most of the leads. Yeah. He's he's a really fine guitar he player. So he's had an, an ear. He knows what to do. So what was and maybe we've talked about this before, but so he was involved in writing Set Your Goals. Yeah. What how did that work exactly? Because I feel this has always been incredibly confusing to someone who um, wasn't in Okay, Civ. so the way it happened was we were all doing other things and I was doing I was in Handsome at the time. 
Uh, really? Yeah, I was in Handsome. I didn't realize that. Yeah, it was because I auditioned. Did you tour with them? No. Okay. Okay, what happened was they had this bass player, Eddie, and um, he, he, for whatever reason, Eddie's since died, I believe, but uh, for whatever reason, he wasn't in the band for a while. So Petey Hines, uh, I auditioned for the band. And so I was playing bass, and they, we had this guy from Florida singing. And so I was doing that. Sam was doing... What was Sam was doing a couple of bands at the time. I forgot what else. And Walter had quicksand. Siv wasn't doing any music at the time. And Walter just had a notion. He's like, you know, let's let's just do this this seven inch. And he wrote two songs. He wrote the song at Two Brute, and then he wrote Can We Woman and More. And he's like, let's just do the seven inch. To, let's have let's have Siv back in the, in the spotlight. And, and that's all it was supposed to be because we all had these other projects. So. We went and we recorded those songs, and then our friend Marco Siega that we knew from Jackson Heights growing up, he wanted to strike out on his own. He had been an assistant producer, and he wanted to strike out on his own, so he wanted to create a like a video resume. So he had this idea for the video, which was the what it became, the talk show, and he, he basically called in every favor he had, and he got use of Kaufman Story Studios for a day. So we had the day, and uh, we invited all of our friends, so everybody that's in the audience is... Is a, is a friend of ours, and uh, you know we went through the storyboard of okay, Armand, you're going to be this character, you're going to be this character, and our idea was get a sixty suit, look mod, and it's like okay, it's easy as fucking pie for me. I have a vintage sixty suit, of course. I've got the sunglasses. I'm going to jack the bass up like John Antoine. So, so we all showed up that day. We did that video. That video made its way to Scott McGee, who was managing Quicksand at the time. Scott McGee started showing it to people at record labels so suddenly several record labels were saying we okay we want this band remember this is like the mid 90s when they were signing yeah, everything yeah. <laughs> they were signing that <laughs> i mean it was it was i felt at the time like we're pulling the biggest heist yeah. all these hardcore kids are now post-hardcore kids and we're all on salary to this label or that label and that's when the 90s was so fun for me you know paying this pittance for rent on a salary, I'm touring, I'm living the life, I'm waking up at the, at the, at the crack of dusk, going out, <laughs> drinking for free, getting the best drugs, and like, you know. But uh, anyway, so then it was, then it was a, a matter of, well, this could be something serious. So Walter started writing the record, and we decided we were actually going to do a band. And then, you know, I left Handsome, they got Eddie back. Um, Sam left his band, Charlie. And of course, Charlie was a natural unnatural choice because he was living with Walter at the time and Charlie Outface was done so he didn't have anything and uh, it was funny because Siv was really against calling the band Siv really? yeah and he agreed to it only when it was going to be a 7 inch but then he was stuck with it <laughs> <laughs> well of course he said, he said how does this make me look I look like I'm Bon Jovi or something yeah. like, you know that's what was so awesome about it though I know I thought it was kind of <laughs> cool you're like, this, like oh I know that guy yeah from like this hardcore band oh now he's on MTV. Yeah, that was weird. <laughs> like, that was really, fuck. really weird because I remember MTV actually. There's another band called. Were they called Compulsion? They were from Ireland, and they had done a video that was a similar story. And MTV called up Scott McGee and said, "You need to get that record out because this video is ready, and we're putting it on hold because we want to break Siv." And uh, I remember the first time it was playing on MTV, and then it got put into the buzz bin in heavy rotation. And uh, I remember the first time we heard ourselves on the radio, we were on the Warp Tour in Atlanta. We were in a cab. It was uh, Charlie, Sam, and me, and we had had a few. It 
fucking Sammy were in the back of the cab and uh, the song comes on and Sammy like leans over the poor cab driver is kind of startled <laughs> so like, this is my band this is my band this is us this is us can you turn it up and the cab driver's like yeah yeah sure sure whatever <laughs> but uh yeah that was that was kind of like a was never supposed to be it was never supposed to be a, a, a full band and I remember Walter writing the songs while he was on tour with Quicksand <laughs> shit now he would just email them to us he was on tour with Quicksand and uh he would write like a song or two a day and he would put it on a little mini cassette and he'd mail it to Charlie. Charlie would get it and he'd be like, okay, here's the next song. And you could hear, I wonder if these recordings still exist. I wonder if Charlie has them or somebody. It's him in the back lounge of the the bus playing his guitar without an amplifier and whispering songs in. You know, I think about, you know, how Jane Wheedland wrote Our Lips Are Sealed. She did it with a tape recorder when she was in London and uh, she sang it, whispered it because like people were sleeping and that's, and you know, every day, hey, Charlie, hey, I got another, I got another tape. So it's like Walter. Choices Made or something and it's on like this little tape. I'm sure. All those songs. That's how he said <laughs> He wrote so them crazy. on the like awesome. tour. Yeah, yeah. And then he came That'd back. That would be and, awesome to release. Ah, uh, it would be funny. <laughs> Singing. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, and then that, that became... And that full album, that was a lot of, that was a lot of fun to record. That record was a blast because that's the time that I was, I mentioned before where Walter was doing manic compression, <laughs> then finished the manic compression sessions and the Civ start, uh, set your goal sessions would start. And so he just basically lived in Fury Studio. It's kind of like, I just realizing now that's kind of been Walter's MO all along. Bite off more than you could chew. Just keep doing things. And do so much and leave no time for yourself. Yeah. But also helps to be really good at writing songs. Like <laughs> yeah, a lot of people, you know, no one could really pull that off. Do you off. know how many songs this guy's thrown away? No, I don't. I don't either. But I do know <laughs> that there are songs that he's just... Walter does this. This is a Walter thing. I'm rubbing my chin if anybody can't see. So Walter is... Yeah, I don't know. I guess it's a good song. I don't know, though. I don't know. And I'm not in any way making fun of him. I'm amazed by him. Because... Some of these songs I'm thinking of right now are just such, they're so perfect. They're such perfect, catchy pop tunes. And, uh, and I love working with him. He's a lot of fun because he gives me a lot of latitude. It's like, yeah, just, and what I love about him too is I trust him so much. If I'm doing something on the bass and he suggests something else, I will, I'll, uh, I'll, um, you know, listen to him because he's, that's the other thing. He's an amazing bass player. A lot, not a lot of people know that. Walter is an incredible bass player. He just, he knows music. He knows what every instrument's supposed to do. And, you know, it's, it's, that's why it's such a pleasure working with him. He could be, you know, he knows what he wants. And that's the way, and, and bands work really well that way. I think, you know, I mean, I remember reading an interview with Shane McGowan, and I think in the, the creative process, he was right. The best bands had like dictators, you know, which is so funny in contrast to what I was saying before about politics, a band should be a democracy in terms of where's the band going, what direction are we doing, but when it comes to songs, everyone needs to subordinate their ego and just whoever writes the better song. Like, I know that if I did a band with Walter and we had 10 songs, probably 10 out of 10 of his songs are going to be better than mine, and I'd be happy with one of mine being as good as anything that he would write. And that's the whole thing. It's like, do you want the band to be the best or do you want to stroke your ego and then the band shits the bed? So... Um, you know, he's, it's, you know, he's, he, he, I marvel at him and anything he does, you know, I mean, Dead Heavens is a great band. Yeah. They're really, <laughs> really good. Anyway, enough of my, my panegyrics to Walter. I could go on forever. What about, what about Arthur? What are you doing kind of musically now? Damn, I'm doing nothing. It's kind of driving me crazy. Yeah. I'm practicing. 
Yeah, it's funny too because I, I went was, to one of your when you were doing those open mic nights in Astoria. I went. Oh once. God, my God, those were. It was amazing. I, I was like, yeah, I, I, I was like, we went up there. I went up there with Jamie, and yeah, none of these people knew who they're just saying. I watched just some or Arthur just some guy in the neighborhood, and yeah. he was playing songs acoustic. Yeah, those are. I should record those songs someday. Yeah, I thought it was good. I have about twenty songs I've written. Some of them are pretty good, but I need to. I have and I, I've I've done them on GarageBand, but my voice is not. It's not a lead singer's voice. I got to find somebody who can sing them because they're cool. They're like very different, and I just wrote a bunch of stuff. But uh, I that's one thing I like. But it's funny too because um, I just realized you know you can always be a better musician. And what I'd really love to do, the thing I'd love to do more than anything, is do like a Motown soul thing. So I'm like going now and like just playing along with Jamerson. You go right to the to the source. That's some hard shit. Dude, he's, <laughs> he did it with one finger. It's mind blowing. Because then you, okay, you play the bass line and you're like, okay, it's not that hard. But what made him think to do this? He's such. I mean, well, you think about the influence of Jamerson, John Paul Jones, Paul McCartney. Yeah. Paul McCartney was like invented rock bass playing, right? And he's like, it's Jamerson. It's all Jamerson. That's it. Yeah. yeah. It's like, you can't go very wrong if you're going to copy one bass player as, down, as an electric bassist. You can't go very wrong copying James Jamerson. Talk about melodic bass playing, too. I mean, well, that's what he did that was so different. Before Jamerson, everybody was just kind of approximating what the upright did, and they were doing the thirds and yeah. the fifths, and that's great. And what I love is that when I, try, when I write a bass line throughout my life, and I'm not in any way equating myself to Jamerson, but it just kind of felt like this kindred spirit once i learned about him and how he, he approached it that he he was the first to incorporate melodies in just like every so often throw the melody in and um you know i mean you listen to a baseline like uh you know you know where to run to oh the baseline in that and it just repeats but it's just so freaking brilliant or like uptight stevie wonder that baseline oh, yeah. sick that song is just <laughs> unbelievable. Like, uh, reach out yeah. Reach out. That baseline is. What was the other one? I listened to an isolated track the other day. And uh, is it I'll Be That's There? That's what I Reach Out. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's it. That yeah. baseline is. Oh insane. my God. I know. Right? He said the greatest thing, which is so funny. I saw, I read an interview with him from about 1970 or so. And uh, <laughs> they asked him about his gear. What do you play? Play a 1962 precision bass that I bought in 1962. Okay, cool. <laughs> What kind of strings do you use? What comes out of 1962 precision bass? Yeah, yes. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. There was one, there's an old story about one of these guys. I've never seen Brad look so excited, He changed by the way. his strings and fucked up his bass sound, and he had to go get the old strings Yeah, the, 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 it was the funk was machine. One, I think it was one of these Motown guys. The funk machine, yeah. he, the dirt, he never, he never cleaned the bass, he never cleaned the strings. Yeah. The dirt was the tone. <laughs> yeah. Well, they were flat ones. Yeah. yeah. Why would you ever change flat ones? No, you don't have Unless to. they yeah. absolutely rust. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. But yeah, yeah. Do you know that one of his basses went up for auction last year, but it's not, it's not the funk machine. It was his backup bass. He did use it. It has been used by Jamerson, but it wasn't that main 62B right. bass that we How always see. How much did it go for? I, they didn't even say, they, they weren't even putting up a price, I don't think. Wow. It was just going to be like... Don't insult us. Yeah, it's like yeah, I played a 1945 Martin D45 once. I used to work at Manny's Music, and I went to Rudy's Music across the way. I was friends with the guy who, um, Gordon, worked in the acoustic department. Great guy. And we used to have lunch together, and I went in one day. He still works there. Rudy's moved down to Broom Street. But this is when everything was still on 48th. And he's like, Rudy just got a 1945 D45. And I was like, shut up. He's like, 
I'm not supposed to show it to anybody, but it'll be cool with you because he likes you. So I went in the back. I, I strung the, strummed an open G, a G chord, and I was like, that's it. I'm not even doing anything after this. What? I'm not even worthy. This tone was incredible. So I asked him, what is he asking for? And Gordon just said, he's like, no, he's not. <laughs> Anybody who's going to bid on this is not going to insult him. In 1945, D45. I'm like, well, he's going to be asking. It's got to be going for at least, this is more than 10 years ago now, too. It's got to be going for at least 70000 back then. This fucking thing. Jesus. Yeah. Stradivarius. It's, I mean, <clears throat> 1945, D45. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, 19, you know, 1954 Strat or a 1951 P base. I almost bought a 51 P base. The guy thought it was a 52. And he was, for a 52, he was asking very little. And do you know Davide from Orange Nine? No. I was with David and our, at a, they used to have this music, uh, instrument uh, show down in, um, down on Avenue A and I think around 10th Street back in the 90s and I went with Dov and we're just looking around I'm like oh wow 52B bass all original second owner never had anything but flat one strings no so fretwear like the telly bass yeah like telly style yeah butterscotch blonde completely original everything stock and I forgot what he was asking but I was like that's on the low end so I look over I look at the serial number and I'm like Dov come here he's like what I'm like dude that's a 51 he's like yeah how do you know I'm like I know Fender serial numbers <laughs> I was like, that's a 51. You do know what that means, right? That's a massive difference. Like, 51 was the first year. Those are the first precision bases. Just that, I mean, the 52 could have been a better instrument if you had two yeah. of them, but the 51 is going to be worth yeah, more because yeah. it's, it's a piece of history. And I'm like, I can't do this to the guy. I can't rip him off. <laughs> I can't fucking, he's like, what are you fucking crazy? I know that guy. He's a piece of shit. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't do it, man. I can't do it. And I didn't pull the trigger. And I'm actually glad I didn't because I got into some weird times after that and i probably would have sold it for even less and i'd rather ne never owned a 51p base than owned one and let it get away yeah, yeah <laughs> it's better yeah. to never have owned yeah exactly exactly because <laughs> you don't know what you're missing all right that was a fun one Whew. i mean this is one of those podcasts I looked over, you know, at like 17, I looked over at the clock at 17 minutes. I'm like, fuck, 17 minutes. He said so much already. <laughs> like, is he going to be able to keep going? <laughs> yeah. And yes, he did keep going. And where we ended this podcast was not the end. It actually, there's a, there's a lot of gear talk after. There's about 18 minutes of gear talk afterwards. So Your tone head. Uh, you go over to uh, patreon.com slash going off track. And you can join up, join the team um, at any level. There's a few different levels of commitment, but it doesn't I'm, take much to get the uh, to check out the outtakes and stuff like that. Yeah, so. yeah. If you want to support the podcast and hear those outtakes, you can also hear bonus episodes. Get it early. I I never wanted to own a P base till talking to Arthur, yeah. and it's so infectious. And now I'm like, I think I need one. Not only not only do you need one, but you need a, a 51. Yeah, right? I, a, I need a 51. <laughs> I know it's so elusive. How could you not have one? Oh my god! Yeah, my that would change my life. Um, but yeah, thank you, thank you to Arthur. Check out his his latest band, World Be Free, with uh, with Sammy, um, and also with Scott Vogel from Terror and uh, Slugfest, Despair. Check. So they put out a record a couple of years ago. That's great. Members of Judge too, I believe. Um, and one of the members is from a band called uh, Envy, who are uh, very. Pretty obscure band from Buffalo. I used to see growing up a lot. Anyways, uh, but yeah, if you want to support the podcast, please donate to our Patreon. If 
You want to do a one-time thing, you can go to Venmo. I always want to say Vimeo. Go to Venmo.com <laughs> slash off track. That'll go straight to Brad. He will probably get it to us. Um, you can also lose That's where a- all the beer comes from. It is? Yeah, because like that, it's easy for me to just transfer that to my own. That's great. Yeah, I haven't been drinking this month, uh, but I'm going <laughs> to make up for it at some point. Um, but uh, also, yeah, can we get organic snacks or something? Hell yeah, whatever you want. Man. All right, I like that. <laughs> um, you can also leave us a nice review on iTunes. Um, that is always helpful. Or you can just tweet at us at Going Off Track and... Uh, like I said, we're working on doing some new social media stuff. So I don't know. Maybe you're sick of social media. I'm pretty sick of social media. <laughs> I think it's the last thing probably anyone needs. But, uh, but this will be uplifting social this media. This will be uplifting Not social media. Not the other kind. Yeah. So maybe we need more of that. Yeah, we need more uplifting stuff. That's for sure. Um, but yeah, thanks to Arthur. Thanks to Pulse. And uh, yeah, I guess. What else, Brad? Thank you. Thank you, the listener. <laughs> and thank me, me, Jonah. Yeah. For what? Oh, man, you do so much. Uh, what else am I going to do? <laughs> Wouldn't be here without you. Wouldn't be here without you, Brad. I, I would be recording that. this on like a digital recorder and it would do. sound It might be terrible. enough for some people. It might be enough for some people, <laughs> but not for going off track. No way. It would not be going off track without you. <laughs> All right. We will be back next week with another, another podcast. So see you then. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.